That's improv, bitch. Im- improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Hi, Improv Nerd fans. This is Jimmy Corain, and we are coming to you from the Hotel Indigo in Chicago, where we were lucky enough to sit down with Rachel Dratch, uh, and she talked to us about uh, her new book, Saturday Night Live, Second City, and Getting Pregnant at 44. She was a cast member of Saturday Night Live for seven seasons, uh, creating such memorable characters as Debbie Downer. Do we have to go wah, wah? We might. Okay. Wah, wah. Okay. <laughs> Sully and Denise and the Lovers. She has recently written a new book on sale now called Girl Walks Into a Bar, Comedy, Calamity, Dating, Disasters, and a Midlife Miracle. Rachel Dratch, welcome to a very special episode of Improv Nerd. Thank you very much for having me. So you grew up in uh, Boston, you went to Dartmouth, where you started to do improv, and then you come to Chicago in the late 80s. I feel so formal asking. We, we've known each know. other for a long time. We've known I each other since I don't know, 90 we, or something. Well, we did uh, a group called Jazz Freddy and Gambrinus King of Beer. Gambrinus, I think. Right, that, right. Yeah. Which was In just. The bar. Which, yeah. It was much like this interview. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you were doing Second City at the time. Yeah, I don't remember. It was Jazz Freddy, during Jazz Freddy. And then the yeah. second run, you go to do Second City, and, and I don't think we let you do Jazz yeah, Freddy. Yeah, was all Kechner. <laughs> Dave Kechner? <laughs> was being a militant about the rules. Uh-huh. No, because I might have had to miss a few rehearsals or uh-huh. something. Yeah, so I couldn't do the second Jazz Was Freddy. that a hard decision for you to make? <laughs> I love that we're starting with this. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it was a bummer, but I knew I had to do Second City Tour Co, because, mm-hmm. you know, that was a more lasting possibility. So I thought at the time. Yeah. And how's it worked out? You think it was, it was good, a good? It was a good choice. Although it did hurt to not be in the second jazz party. Yeah. And, and do, do you have any ill feelings towards Dave? No, I'm not. Right. Uh, <laughs> now, at the time, I may have. Really? <laughs> no. Well, Dave, 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 Dave was. Dave was. Dave was very. Um, well, he held down. Yes, and very passionate about. Yes. It, you yes. know. Um, <laughs> Which is funny because when I thought of your book, I thought about Dave saying, uh, you know what, you should call the book uh, A Thousand and thousand One. A Thousand and One. Was that ever a thought of a title? It wasn't, but I just did a reading in L.A. and Ian Gomez asked from the back, are you going to play Thousand and One right here? And I totally forgot Explain about Explain for the listeners that... Okay, I never really understood it, but it always was the game that it, after the party devolved, Thousand and One would start to be played. And that was, uh, you'd say, like, a thousand and one brooms. I'm, I'm okay, going to get closer to you. thousand and one brooms. Get out of the lobby, ladies. Okay, like, a thousand and one, I don't have an ending to this. thousand and one brooms walk into a bar. Bartender says, <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of something for a broom. Um, oh, okay, thousand and one brooms walk into a bar. Look at the bartender and say, hey, how's business? And the bartender says, oh, it's okay. And the broom says, oh, it looks like you're really mopping up here. Right. Mopping up. Yeah, and then you'd have to sell it. Then you'd have to sell it with a monkey dance. And usually people Which were meant, really, really, a monkey dance. Monkey dance meant grabbing your crotch, putting your fingers up your nose to make a pig nose, and then doing a little dance. That was the traditional monkey dance. Now, when you started out at I.O., you were like, um, you were like the one woman per team kind of thing. Yes, this was back, the, yeah, back before in the dark ages, um, <laughs> a lot of the improv teams had like eight dudes and one woman. And so I was lucky enough to be that one woman because the good thing was people always ask, is it hard to be a woman in comedy? But actually what I think back is, like if you were the woman here in Chicago, you got so much stage time because you were more of a rare commodity. So then you got a lot more practice, then you got better and better. It actually helped me, I think. And so then you go on to Second City and you do, you're in the touring company and then you get uh, Main Stage, which your first show was Pinata Full of Beasts, which is this groundbreaking show. Adam McKay is in it, yeah. Scott Atz is in it. I mean, it's John a, Glazer. John Glazer who goes on to what show is Glazer? Delocated. Okay, yeah. but he wrote for Conan <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, for a long time. Uh, but that was not an easy show for you, as I remember. Well, it was my first show up there, and so even though it was this big groundbreaking thing, like I really didn't have anything to do with the groundbreaking part of it. Uh-huh. Like I was just there to like try to do characters and blah blah blah. But those guys were like they had this whole vision, which I mean was great. Like I was lucky to be involved, but. Whenever people talk about Pinata, I'm like, I feel like I can't take any credit for the sort of breaking up. But you, you also felt like you didn't have a place in the show. Is that right? 
Well, no, no. I just it was since it, like often when it's your first show at Second City, yeah. you don't really know how to create like a character. Uh-huh. So that was it. I didn't feel like I didn't place. I just felt like I played a lot of straight people because I didn't really. I, it was still learning the ropes, you know. Was that you know everybody says about Pinatas? That was Adam's vision. It was really Adam and Tom Janis, I guess, the director. Those two were kind of like driving the train. And then we were all, I mean, I don't want to take credit away from all the other cast members. Maybe they felt like they were fully <laughs> responsible. But for me, that's how I experienced it. It was like Adam had this, you know, he was always such a sort of revolutionary thinker, I think. And then the next two shows you do at Second City, you, you do become... I totally kick ass, Jim. No, no, it's no, true. Uh, it's true. <laughs> no, then I, you know, then the next one I felt a little better. And then the next one I felt like I was really in, in the zone. That was Paradigm Lost. Yeah. And 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 uh, what changed? Do you think? Well, I think it's just the. Exp- I mean, even when I first got on main stage, it's such a big space compared uh-huh. to where I'd been playing that it felt like a whole different beast, sort of. And and um, you know, I didn't really feel like I owned the space. It uh-huh. took like about a year of improvising up there to really feel comfortable. And I think that was all. It was about comfort and feeling like, yeah, I can step on a scene. I can, you know, own this room or whatever. But that takes a while. And then and then. Um, uh, you go on to Saturday Night Live. What do you have to adapt from the Second City style, you know, like creating a sketch of Second City versus SNL? Right. Well, Second City, all the scenes are written through improv, so they're all written on your feet. Someone might come in with an idea, and then you just try it out in front of the audience. Um, or just a random improv scene that comes up. Um, but at SNL, you're sitting in front of a computer, you know, it's writing night, you have to come up with something by the next day. And you're not on your feet just acting stuff out. So I found the first way, the Second City way, much easier um, to come up with scenes. So how did you have to adapt when you were at SNL? Well, you know, that was a whole other learning curve. Just uh-huh. like first time on the main stage, like at SNL, it's a whole... Like, like you couldn't do a slow scene at SNL, pretty mm-hmm. rarely. Like, I wrote this... I mean, not my first year, but there was one year I wrote this scene that I just loved. I could never get it on because... It was more of a second city scene. It was more like theatrical. And at, at SNL, you need that like punchline, 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 because people can change the channel. So uh-huh. they're not going to stick around for some like patient. You know, occasionally one would slip through on SNL, but for the most part, you need hard jokes if, to even get it on the show, to get the laughs at the table. You know. You know, and I want I, I want to say this, and because we know each other and stuff like that, and I watched SNL. And I also knew your work, at, you know, working with you and Jazz Freddie and, and Gambrinus, even though that was more <laughs> drinking. <laughs> Gambrinus was more drinking we than... you wouldn't do that now. Yeah, okay. That was, that was, that was our, our opening at yeah. one of our games. We were really, we were cutting edge for, for uh, short form. Yeah. Um, but when you were here, there was a likability to, to your persona. There was an intelligence to your persona. You. Um, <laughs> there was a quirkiness. And then when you get on SNL... There's there's a shift, and it's almost nobody likes you. Nobody finds you. No, I'm just kidding. No, but in terms of your persona, it becomes a little more grotesque, and some of your character choices. Would you agree to that? Well, I never looked at it that way. Um, <laughs> grotesque. Like um. I, I I remember watching the show, watching the show. Rachel, you became grotesque. No, okay, no, yeah. no, no, no. But some of the characters. Well. I mean, maybe you're thinking of that thing with the arm out of its head. Yeah, and that I, when I saw that, that was the Why one. Why did you say that's grotesque? That's, okay. that's the one. That I got so angry. Was, okay, but I got so angry because I'm like, Rachel. Oh, you're like my mother. Yeah, did your mom say that? Maybe about that one. What no, did she say? Um, you know what? Okay, I have so many answers to this. Okay. Well, first of all, that, that little guy with the arm out of its head, that was written by a writer, and it was the very first appearance of that was... Angelina Jolie and her brother had had a kiss at the Oscars. Uh-huh. And they were on Weekend Update, and I came on as their love child, okay. brother, brother and sister. So that was the initial thing of that character. And then, like, he picked me to play it. And at the time, well, not even at the time, I'm still glad. Like, like you're so psyched when a writer creates this funny, crazy thing for you to do. So um, then that thing, whose name is Quaterple Clicks, little known fact, would reappear anytime like, a mutant was needed. But I, I always had fun doing it. So, um... I mean, I didn't mind that I was known for the creature with the arm out of its head. Um, beyond that, I don't know. You know, I guess just SNL kind of encourages, like, bigger characters. Or as the bartender, Rose, would have said, big characters. Isn't that so old? No oh, Ro- Rose is... Like, uh, way day has gone by. Yeah, um, Rose is on Lincoln, no, uh, uh, Lincoln <laughs> Avenue. No, um, I think SNL is sort of conducive to that, you know? Uh did you ever feel pigeonhole? Like, like pigeonhole. Um, pigeonhole. Um, no, because you know what? Well, like, 
Okay, here's the thing. Like, you create your own stuff for the most part uh-huh. on SNL. So, like, the stuff I think of that I did was, like, the Boston Teenagers. Right. The Lovers, like you said. And, of course, Debbie Downer. And, um, like, little kid. Like, that, I did that little junior high school boy, Sheldon. Right. And uh, the agent. Uh, the agent. The right. Agent. So you I, always loved doing old showbiz mm-hmm. stuff. Remember you had that character? No, the, the, uh, there was a character you had that you tried. And I think you did. It was in the book. Uh, she was um, a... Uh, failed uh, movie star. Oh, oh I did. She, I did Betty Ann, the, the yes, child star. Yes. Yeah, she was a child star, past child star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why I didn't that I ever think, get any traction? I tried. I tried. Um, well, that's another thing about SNL. You could have this character that was like a huge hit at Second City, and then you bring it to SNL, and uh, you can't get it on, you know, for whatever reason. So it's the whole thing. You want to be like, wait a minute, you guys, this kills on Second. Just trust me here. You know, trust me, this is gonna work. But if you don't get it through that little fence or that giant fence, you know, then you, you can't see the light of day. So. Do you ever, if you get rejected, you find a different way? Like three months later, you're going to try it again? Or is well, it just that? You can try things again. You kind of get the vibe. Like, well, uh-huh. did this not work just because it was the host didn't want to do it that way? Mm-hmm. You kind of get the vibe. But then you have to put it back up again so everyone's already heard it. So it's a, kind of a challenge. But yeah, some things you could try again and again. But. You've said in your book that <laughs> going to Saturday Night Live, there's two things. You either need a therapist or you need to start drinking. <laughs> what emotional yeah. issues come up when you're on SNL? Oh, this is a good Yes, this is, yes. Yes, it is. It's going to get worse. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay, what emotion? That's such a good question. Are you in therapy now? I'm not now. Okay, but But when you were there? When I was there? um, Well, I had been in therapy. I think I was in maybe on and off. Not, not, I I did one big chunk without and one chunk with, I think. Okay. I don't remember. So what issues came up for you? Okay, so what issues come up for everyone there is that, well, just like, you know, if you go like week after week after week and you're not on the show much, mm-hmm. you know, it starts to wheedle into your brain. You're like, you feel, you can feel like a dime a dozen there. Like in Second City, it was just you and the audience every, uh-huh. every night. There was no middleman telling you like, you're good, you're bad, you suck. And there was also a, a thing of if you were in a show that they would balance out, you know, like, oh, Lauren, uh, Rachel, you're lighting the show. We need to get something right at Second City. Second City, I don't know. Not, you know, I'm not really sure how that works. Okay. I think they'll like try to even it out. Yeah. But um, not at SNL. No, not at <laughs> That's just more airtime. Yeah. Occasionally, if you weren't in at all, they'd stick. Not, not really. It's kind of every man for himself. Uh-huh. But I don't want to give the wrong impression in terms of like the cast was very. It, it was an ensemble feeling. It was like supportive feeling. Mm-hmm. The cast, like if you did something funny at the table, the cast would come up afterwards. Oh my god, that was so funny. You know, it wasn't this like you know dog eat dog thing mm-hmm. in terms of personal vibes. It was more just the structure of the show. That like some weeks you're on, some weeks you're on. So anyway, the emotional thing is like if you're not in, not in, not in, you start to lose your confidence, and then then it becomes harder to write. So like it's like the plants that are getting watered grow even more, and the plants that aren't getting watered start to slowly corrode from the roots. It's like, no, I don't know, I don't know. It's just that's in her book, by the way. That's chapter four. Chapter four, slowly corroding <laughs> yeah. at the roots. Um, <laughs> no, so uh, yeah, you know, if you you come into SNL feeling like you know your cock of the walk from wherever you came from. Right, because oh, you were know. you were a huge deal here. I was pretty big. No, I mean, I felt, Honestly. I felt like, I felt good because it was, it's like I said, just you and the audience, uh-huh. and I felt really a strong connection with the audience, like supported and like just a lot of good vibes. Um, it's harder to like feel the audience vibes at SNL, you know? So what is, what do you do when you, you're like, you, you, you don't feel confident or you feel like, no, you know, you're not getting a break at SNL. Um, God, I don't know. Like, you just have to, you know, keep trying to come up with new stuff. But the the thing about SNL that also when you're in the cast, like, if you're light in the show, you really notice it. But no one else, like, people on the street don't notice it. Like, all you really need is one hit character for the whole season. Mm-hmm. And that's what the audience, like, people on the street just know you from that. So they're not counting that you weren't in the show two weeks ago. It's only you because you're in this little society. But there's know? also pressure, isn't there, from... There is pressure, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. You, you could start to feel like, oh, my God, like, am I going to get let go? Like, I mean, once you're through your first few years, you feel pretty secure. But, um, yeah, like, you could, you know... When was that moment where you felt like, okay... I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> no, no, no. And not, you know, you don't really feel, like, super... Um, like, okay, now I'm in. Like, you don't really feel like that. I didn't. You know, maybe other people do. I would just get on medication. <laughs> do a lot of people do that? They might. I okay. don't really know. And I'm, not, I'm talking about the legal stuff. I'm yeah. not talking about, you know. Yeah. 
Uh, what was? But I don't want to. I mean, I don't want it to sound like so. I mean, it's like it's well. The chapter of my book is called. Um, what is it called? The dream job. Your, your dream job. Oh, I know. Chapter of the book is called "Dreams Do Come True" uh-huh. and may be accompanied by debilitating psychological torture. Because I want to stress, like it is your dream job. There's so many amazing things about uh-huh. it. Like I hate to be like, and another thing about it, it's, it's just it can be it can be challenging to get you know airtime. When I was there too, it was a much bigger cast too. So. What what is what are some of your favorite sketches from, from SNL? Well, probably the ones I said, like the the lovers one with uh-huh. Will and the. The Boston one, with the, you know, because Tina and I did that here mm-hmm. in Second City. And, that one got snuck through. Yeah, well, every so often one gets off. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, Debbie Downer probably, like, you know, that's what people know me most for. And that was the one where we cracked up so hard. So it was a fun moment. You know, I had uh, interviewed Horatio Sands, who him and Jimmy Fallon were known for cracking up. Yes. And I asked him, I said, did Lauren ever say anything? Because did Lauren ever say anything? No, he didn't. Did he ever say anything to Horatio and Jimmy? What Horatio was said wondering. was, he never, is that, is that, let me see if I can remember this. He never, um, he never said anything to him, but he, he kind of heard around the circle that Lauren didn't like him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I never got in trouble for laughing, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Uh, what was, who was your favorite host? Um, no, I always say, like, the, those sort of perennial hosts, like, Alec Baldwin, Christopher Walken, uh-huh. Steve Martin, like those guys, you know, those are always the faves because you just know they're going to be good. But um, then there were always the surprise hosts, like sometimes they'd have an athlete or a politician on. Uh-huh. And that, that was actually fun because they, they don't have the fear. They're not like trying to be funny. They mm-hmm. know they're not known for being funny. So they could be a lot more fearless than right. like some Oscar winning actor or something, uh-huh. you know. So that was kind of a, a, a adventurous. Who's hosting. the weirdest host? The weirdest host. Um... Okay, here's the thing. I don't have like a good answer for this, but it's because I wasn't in on the inner circle where the host might like be, you know, throwing a fit or something. Uh-huh. So we never really got to see like when someone was being a diva or whatever. I don't really have the weirdest host. Most surreal moment oh, on SNL. Most oh, surreal moment. Like I can't uh, believe I'm here. Oh my god. Well, geez. Um, Okay, most surreal moment, I gotta say. Very first night I was there because I got to be there. I was talking about this. I got to be there on the, the 25th anniversary show. Uh-huh. It was my very first night there. It wasn't even a real show, it was like a special. Uh-huh. So I show up just thinking I'm sitting in the audience, and then they're like, You've got to get hair and makeup. And I was like, What? I'm just sitting here watching. But anyway, I go, like, it was like Cinderella. You go get, they're like, Here's your dress. It was like little cartoon mice were putting the dress on me. And like, Here's the hair guy and the makeup. And, and then, like, I'm sitting in the makeup chair. And Lily Tomlin, Elvis Costello, and Dan Aykroyd are all in this little tiny makeup room with me. And I was like, I felt like I was having this crazy dream. Like, how did I get here? This is incredible. So that was definitely the most surreal, you know. Um, then there's moments when, like, you're in a scene that's getting zero laughs. And you're just looking around at your fellow castmates. Like, but those usually get cut at dress. So Dress but, rehearsal. You do yeah. a show before, right? Yeah. yeah. To, to explain the process, you do a show before, which is dress they have rehearsal. A few too many scenes, so that's why you never know if you're going to be on the show because, like, you might be all over the dress, and then all your scenes get cut. That could happen. Yeah. <laughs> In your book, I think you're incredibly honest, and you talk about how hard it is leaving SNL uh, in terms yeah. of oh, not, like my, yeah, like not getting cast and stuff like right. that. And what does Hollywood? In your book, you talk about it. what does Hollywood see Rachel Dratch? Well, in the book, I talk about. See, this is I, like this has gotten a lot of sort of press stuff, right? Which is of, good, Rachel. It's good. You no, know, it's good. But the thing is, it's a lot of people are like fixing on it because it's like the negative thing I say, sort of. Which is I'm what? Not saying you're, well, a lot of a lot of like um, interviews I've done. That's like the first thing they ask is like, "What kind of parts are you getting?" Blah blah blah, and um, and they're like, "You're so self-deprecating this book." Like some have been a little like over the top. And I want to be like, you should see what I left out of the book. Right. Like, I'm just telling it like it is, you know. But, um, no, I was just getting offered, like, you know, gnarly ladies. Like, I mean, like you said, maybe the arm out of the head had some... But, like, influence. obese? Like, yeah, like, I would get, you know, like, an obese 65-year-old walks into the room. Like, that's, that's how, like, the Hollywood Funhouse mirror uh-huh. where, like, Rachel equals obese 65-year-old right. in Hollywood, you know? Um, a lot of stuff like that, like a lot of um, a lot of lesbian parts. Uh-huh. Every time I'd open a script, it'd be like, you know, Callie, a lesbian, and it was just kind of a joke with me and my agent because like it was 
across the board. Um, and I also make this very clear in the book that I know lesbians come in all varieties of hotness. I was not getting offered the hot lesbians. <laughs> um, Why do you think so, Hollywood looks at you as a lesbian? Do you ever they analyze do, they that? No, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, I feel like if I hazarded a guess, it might sound like I'm going into a stereotype or something, but that's what it is, I guess. I mean, um, and so, yeah, so, so then, you know, there's not a lot of call for these parts, by the way. Like, they come up, you know, once in a while. So then everything kind of slowed down after SNL. And, uh, and they're, they're only offering you, like, day parts, too. Yeah, exactly. which Which is, like, one or two days on a movie or a TV totally. show. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, there was never, like, oh, you know, oh, I almost got this series. Right, like, right. That was, you know, for years. Or a sixth um, episode yeah, on... nothing, uh, nothing. So then I was sort of like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, you know? Um, and so then I... But I did decide, though, that I didn't want to sit around and bum out about it because I did that after Second City. I didn't get any work. And then I ended up getting SNL. So but you like, say that. But how long after Second City do you get Saturday Night Live? It's like, it was a year. Oh. So I don't I'm mean, sorry to hear that. No, no, no. I don't mean that that's like so long. <laughs> right. I just mean, like, you think Second City is going to be this big. Right. You know, so I went out to L.A. and I, I couldn't even get an audition for right. it. So I just sort of thought, like, oh, that's it. Like, it's just... That's the end. Do you Second just City. make Second City bigger and bigger on your resume and then fine? <laughs> no, but when you get to LA, you see everyone put Second City on. Okay. As if, like, if they take class there, they make it seem like they were on stage. So you carry no, you know, cred with you. But, um, so, uh, what was my point here? Oh, yeah, so I didn't want to sit around and bum out. Like, I wanted to use my time. So that's what I, this book kind of, I was like, okay, I'll start trying to date more or I'll, like, have a dog, like I'll dog sit, or I'll go do yoga, or I'll take Spanish class, like all those little things that are on your list. You're like, I should really learn Spanish. Like I did those things, um, and uh, so yeah, the, that's what, why I started writing because finally, like nothing. Well, was you say happen. in your book, you 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 started writing because you bottomed out. What was yeah. the incident that made you bottom out? Do you remember? It wasn't so much like an incident. It was just like you know, like one year went by, two years, three years, still nothing. I mean, little things enough to support yourself, like you said, but. That then I was like, it was more about um, the, my day, how I was spending my day. Like how I'd were go, you spending your well, day? Well, just like, you watching know, watching stupid daytime TV or, like, I'd, I'd go, like, work out or something. But I, but I mean, like, a lot of, like, hmm, what do I do? Like, not a lot of creative endeavors. I never, and even back here, when we worked together, you loved the Jerry Springers. You loved those daytime. And I'm like, you I went did. to Dartmouth. What is, it, what, well, what is it that Jerry you loved? I Springer lo anymore. Okay, watched, but what was it that you enjoyed? Let's, let's step it up to Oprah. Okay. You no, know, I would watch, like, Oprah or Dr. Phil or, uh -huh. like, I say in the book, Judge Mambas. Right. <laughs> but what was it that, that, that you enjoyed? I'm not saying I was, like, you know... I was like, oh, Mathis is on, gotta go. It was just like I was hanging out in like there, I don't know, I was wasting a lot of time. But what did you enjoy about that? Because I remember you'd come to rehearsal and you'd be like, well, I was watching Springer. And I'm like, oh Rachel, God. you, come on. <laughs> you know what? I really chalk it up to um, that I, you know, I said I wanted to be a therapist. That was my other thing. Mm -hmm. So when I first, like, when I would first start watching Oprah, it was like, they'd have a therapist on. I'd be like, oh, what's this? Like, it was sort of my way of being an amateur therapist. But then that devolved into Springer, you know? Back in the day, back in the day, yeah. Um, getting back to, to Hollywood is so much about like we're always like I'm part of the system. You we're, are, you're yeah, part I of am. The system. Sure, this podcast Let's has made me system. part of the, it. Yeah, we're fixing it right mm -hmm. now, but it's always that like impression. Oh, I'm so busy, you know, and all <gasps> yes. that. So why do you write in the book? I'm not working. Okay, okay, okay. See, this was my debate. Like I was like, okay, you know, I got replaced on Thirty Rock. It was, it was which actually, I mean, honestly, that was I was not like. Oof. I was just like, oh, I'm not. Were doing you a little angry about that? I would have been angry. You know what? I gotta say, when it got switched from my part to the little parts, I actually was like, oh, like that makes sense to me. Honestly, like okay. I was, because I didn't really. I said in the thing, the first episode, I was, I was having to seduce Alec Baldwin a little uh -huh. bit, and I was like, Ooh, this isn't me. You know, I kind of, of course, I was trying to do my best, but that was in my, <laughs> my, the little thought flickered through. So I wasn't like completely like what. That was the best work of my life. You know, I kind of got it that, like, they wanted to change the part. Um, Were you disappointed? Here's the thing. I really wasn't until it got picked up and, like, the, the part that felt like the gut punch was seeing it everywhere. Like, at your place by Kukowski, la, la, la. Like, seeing it, like, because replacements happen so often in pilots, right. as you know. And it's usually a little footnote in a, you know, one of the trade things. Mm -hmm. But this was picked up by all, like, the mainstream. Every, it was everywhere. And that's what bummed me out because it was such a sort of a public... Well, did it, did you feel shame about it? Like I was I was fired, I and now guess, it's a public yeah. fire. Or yeah, it did feel a little like a public fire. Yeah, although I didn't use the word firing for my own usage, but 
but yeah, it did feel like a very pub, you know, especially like coming off SNL, uh -huh. where you, like you think after SNL, like you want to sort of carefully plan what you do next and everything. So like, you know, running off SNL and then felt this sort of face planting happen, you know, public thing. And then the other thing that, 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 that really gets me is why are people make such a big, th why do they make it, um, an issue of why does the press about looks and I stuff know, like that? that what do you think thing. it is about? Because I gotta say, like, even that didn't even cross my mind when this was happening. Like, on my own, I wouldn't have been like, well, she's blonde. And, you know, I mean, right. it was just like, oh, like, this makes sense. They went from this type to this type, which is kind of like the nice That's way of say, but saying probably the same We're going thing. a different but, direction. Uh, exactly. Right. But, um, but yeah, then that became the big thing. It was, oh, I saw that everywhere. And of course, that was a bummer, you know. But, uh, but why, why is, even now, the press seems to play I up on know, your looks? And I, I don't get it. You're very either. attractive. Thank look you. at the you book cover. You can't the podcast, but... Um, Buy the book, yeah. see the cover, you'll see <laughs> Thank it. Thank you, Jimmy. But, but why do you think I that is? Know, why I does the American psyche want to hold on I to that? I don't know. That's such a good question. I don't know. Because, um, you know, I don't think of myself in that negative light. Um, but, I don't know, maybe, like, you know, it gets in print once, and then it's like, let's run with this, fellas. You know, I don't know what it is. It just, so, I sort of became this. How do you not do? How do you? <laughs> I don't know. I'll start with that arm out of the head. No, um, I don't really know, but I just sort of like try to, you know, forge ahead. How do you not let it affect your self-esteem? That is a good question. Um, you know, it usually doesn't because I just think, well, this is the crazy like Hollywood lens. It's not real. Like, well, I talk about in the book. Like, I always thought I'd be sort of the wacky friend. Right. But. Now, I mean, I think back when I was watching TV, I could be the wacky friend. Uh -huh. Now it's like the wacky friend is someone who's like also like amazingly beautiful that wears glasses. So yes. it's like it's kind of the whole landscape has sort of shifted. Um, but I don't know how to, you know, I just I guess like writing the book was sort of that. It was sort of like, OK, I don't know if I can play in this field right now. Like, I don't mean field like profession. I mean, like on this like. <laughs> playground right now, you know. So I'm gonna like go off and do something that is just like individual on my own. It's just writing. It's just telling my tale. No one's gonna tell me, you know. Well, this chapter in this chapter, you're too short when you're writing it. You know what I mean? It's just like whatever you write, you're your own judge. But knowing your work, it was always very character based. And yeah. now this was more, this was more you. Yeah. How how did you make that transition? Well, um, I guess it just felt like a whole different you know, activity. Like, mm -hmm. I wasn't really thinking, I usually do characters. I was just thinking, like, some of the stories, well, the ones I first started with, I would just write it, like, if I told a funny story to my friends, mm -hmm. like, oh, you guys won't believe what happened to me, blah, blah, blah. I would just actually write it like that. So, um, yeah, the, the chapters that I like the best are sort of, some of it felt kind of effortless, mm -hmm. just like telling a story. And how do you take something that's embarrassing and then make it funny? Okay, now and here's it's not... where you come into okay. the picture. Okay, all right. Okay, so first of all, yeah, the embarrassing thing, the way I look at it is like those are the funny stories. Like that's the story you go to your friends like, oh my God, you guys, listen to what happened. And then you tell a story and everyone's laughing so hard because something like super embarrassing or horrible. Right. Um, I mean, comically horrible, but <laughs> but uh. Yeah, like the day when everything goes great and, you know, everything works out for you. Like, where's the story there? It has to be the day that everything <laughs> fell to shit, right. you know? But the, but the thing is, like, when I was writing this, some of the parts, you know, felt like just funny stories. But some parts felt, like, very revealing about me. And I was like, oh, should I put... Well, first of all, even the 30 Rock stuff, I was like, do I want to go back and, like, retell all this and have it in people's minds again? Is that going to be bad for me? Or do I want to just, like, you know... Everything was great, and then, but then I started. So I decided, like, that to start the story where I really was in my head. This Thirty Rock stuff was, in, the SNL was in my head. So I felt like I need to start at an honest point mm -hmm. of like where I was. But um, in terms of like being very honest about things, I actually this goes back to Jimmy Crane's okay. show. I'm 27. I, I still, still live at home and I sell office supplies. Now this wasn't consciously in my head, but I thought of this when you called for this interview. Then I had to say, oh my God, Jimmy, you totally influenced me because. I remember when I saw that show, and in that show, you, you like, spilled all your beans. Right. I mean, I don't remember, like, every line, <laughs> but I remember you were very honest and candid about your family situation and your own situation, uh -huh. and and I remember seeing it and thinking it was so funny, but I was just like, oh, how is he telling this to an audience? Like, this is so honest. Like, how is he sharing all these secrets with audience? But I also remember, like, so admiring that, and that always stuck in somewhere in the back of my head. Like, I always like it when I see performers who are just, like, 
you know, laying it bare out there for the world. Because, um, you know, most people are too embarrassed or ashamed or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's sort of how I decided to approach this book. Like, I don't want to leave something out just because if, if it had, if it was like, May I use the word germane here? No, if it, <laughs> it was, if it like had to do with the story and was going to show you where I, where I was, I felt like I should put it in the story. So, um, what I do too is sometimes like now in my life is if, if something feels embarrassing or a lot of shame, I'm like that's eventually going to be a good exactly. story, but I'm not going to be able to write it. It's going to take a while. Is that the same in your process? How do you get? Yeah. Because if not, it becomes just therapy. Yeah. And you're yeah. just. Well, it has to have a funny twist to it. Right. right. But also perspective, don't you think? Like, yeah. you couldn't write the 30 Rock two no. days after it happened. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and for I, example, like, one of the, the, the dates in there, um, like, when it happened, when the guy blew me off so hard, I was not, you know, <laughs> this is funny. Like, at the time, I was really bummed he blew me off. But, um, but then, like, this guy, like, you know, a week later, I was already kind of laughing about it. And then I realized all the funny things that had happened on the date, and then I... Thought, oh, this might make a good story. So, too. what what's the thought process from getting blown off of the date to it's a funny story? What are the thoughts that go in Rachel Dratch's well, head? That one, you know, because he had said he really liked eating horse meat, because um, he had traveled to Japan a lot. And, and you, good. that was a red flag was, for you. Well, that one wasn't. But then later, he asked if I had ever wanted to try eating <laughs> human flesh. That was more of a flag. What but, was it? Why? <laughs> Well, it just, he, the way he said it, Chad, it's kind of a creep. I didn't think he was like a serial killer. Okay. It was just like, you know, that part was just, he was serious, but to me it seemed like a funny story in retrospect to mm-hmm. tell about the guy that blew you off. Right. He asked about tasting human flesh. But no, the horse meat thing, so like, I had told one friend about the horse meat thing, and then I happened to be meeting up with her the night he blew me off so hard. I was really bummed. Like, I went to go meet her instead of this. And what does bum look for, for you? You know, what do you mean? Like, well, how does it look? I mean, do you not um, want to leave your apartment? Do you no, just no, want no. to kill yourself? No, I do mean, not over a date, but um, uh, <laughs> over a, a part I lost. Sure, sure, I'd want to kill myself. No, um, no, um, you know, I just was like, uh, God, I don't know. I just felt like, you know, defeated in the mm-hmm. dating world, you know, because this guy, had, I had high hopes for this guy. And so um, then I went and met my friend. You know, this was my, instead of my date, I'll go meet my friend. And I was just really bummed out. And I was like, I don't know, I just can't believe, like, why would he blow me off, like, the last second, blah, 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 And then she goes, Rachel, I have one word for you. And then she said, horse meat. And then we both just started laughing really hard. And then I saw, like, okay, maybe this guy wasn't the greatest guy ever. <laughs> um, you, two weeks before the book comes out. Yes. You get. Thereabouts, yes. Okay, you get this I get a pilot. Part of pilot. Yes. Um, for someone who is you, me somewhat, a big fan of The Secret. <laughs> How is talking about writing a whole book and getting it published about not getting work in Hollywood and then Bizarro. You, yeah. How I do you know. how do you justify that? Oh my god. I was like, you know, right before the book comes out and I'm talking about how I don't work, I don't work, I don't work, and then I get this great part. Um I don't know, I mean, it could be you know what's funny, that day that I was going in for the callback, I was having lunch with a friend and not even talking about the part, I was like, you know what? I was like I don't really care so much about acting anymore. Like, I mean, of course I care. I I have fun doing it, and I love doing comedy. But I was like, you know, care about, like, being the biggest thing since life. But, like, I don't care about Did that. you have that in your head at one time, that you were going to be... Well, I think when you're on SNL, and you've also worked steadily for 15 years, I don't mean I had to be, like, the biggest thing ever, but you just think you're going to keep working. You think, oh, next I'll do so. You know, you don't imagine, like, no work for five years. Not no work, but you know what I mean. Right. No steady work. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that when I was having lunch that day, and I was like, I was like, I don't really care so much anymore. And I was like, now watch, I'll go get this part because like it's that whole thing that you hate hearing about, like when you don't care anymore, it will happen. And you're like, screw you, because like that's such a weird balance. Like, how do you not care if something happens? But know? how much was that because of oh, your son? <laughs> no, I. <laughs> no, uh, probably probably a lot of it was because of my son. Because like I really did. It, it, in the end, it was one of those things of like. You can't see, you know, that this is actually a good thing because I was so glad to not be working when I had a baby. Like, I mean, because the few times I'd have jobs and I have to go all day, I felt weird about it because I was so used to being the stay-at-home mom, and I really, I really liked that. But you talk about it in the book, and I remember too from Chicago here. You were very focused and very driven on your career. Your career was the most important yeah, thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I know. And well, then you get pregnant in your forties. 
You have yeah. a cutest little baby at the time. Now almost two. Still cute. Yeah. Still cute. <laughs> um, how did how did that change things for you? Well, it kind of made me, you know, I don't know. Not to be one of those everything happens for a reason people, but um, it kind of made me like, well, we maybe... We have to deprogram you from Oprah. <laughs> Thank God she's off. <laughs> no, I, maybe it was sort of like, well, maybe I didn't have work all this time because, you know, it was all lining up for this crazy random encounter. But at the time, you never think that. You, no. To me, Although it'd be like... I tried like, to. I really tried to. Oh, did you? Yeah, I tried to be like, you don't know what's around the corner. Sometimes it was hard to... I mean, still, like, you know, sometimes it's like, well, I don't know if I'll work. I don't know if this pilot's going to go, whatever. But, but there's just... And what back. part did you get in the pilot? Oh well, um, it's this, it's Mini Driver and this woman Andrea Anders who's done a lot of sitcoms, and they play best friends like for you know long term best friends. One's married and one's single, so it's all about the sort of friendship that happens between a married and a single lady. And um, it's written by Carrie Lizer, who wrote New Adventures of Old Christine, and I play sort of the odd side friend of Mini Driver. So it's it's actually the perfect part for me because it's really funny. And you I don't have, have a baby in my head. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> I'm a regular chick, but I'm a little, little socially off, you know. Um, but she's got like she has a lot of really funny lines and stuff. That, and how was that to be back on a, a be a fun. regular? It was kind actually, you know, also like um, at SNL, you're with you're with comedian, you know, you're with the top of the heap of the sketch comedy. Right, world. and it's more competitive. You can, feel, you can feel very much like you know, dime a dozen there a little bit. Mm-hmm. But here, when you go when you go into sitcom land, like. Everyone's coming up to you. Oh my god, that was so funny! Like, I mean, you, I don't know. You just feel like uh, funny. <laughs> was there a time know. when you weren't working that you didn't feel funny? Um. Yeah. I mean, well, I you know I hang out with a lot of funny people, so I always feel like I'm you know with the comedy world. But um, uh, you know, that's a really good question. Because I was thinking for myself lately, I don't feel funny. Yeah. What do you What do you do when you don't feel funny? I mean, you know, I don't know if I'd say I do feel funny because I feel like I use comedy in real life. But, you know, do you feel talented? Like, I think when I was at Second City, I felt talented. Because, mm-hmm. Maybe because of the what I was doing, but because of the feedback. And you don't want to rely on the feedback. But when you don't get a lot of feedback for a long, long time, you can kind of buy into that a little bit and wonder, like, well, am I good at this? Like, I don't know. But I'm getting all deep here. I don't know. I love it when you get deep. <laughs> Is it hard for you to get deep? Um, you know what? Not really, but the only thing is, whenever I'm talking about showbiz or comedy, uh-huh. whatever I say, I could also say the opposite. Like, and it's like one of these big who knows. You know, I don't know. You could plan and plan, or you could just let everything take you where it's going to go. And I don't. And know. And which, which one are the, you? I'm sort of in the middle. Cause uh-huh. Like, you don't want to have no ambition and no. You you want to put it out to the universe, <laughs> but then on the flip side, with this crazy biz, like sometimes you just have to just go where the current takes you. So that's where the balance is. I don't have figured it out. Well, and that really happened in your life with the baby and John and stuff like right. that. And there's a beautiful part in the book where John's brother oh, writes this. Yes. Can you tell us a little about okay, that? It's this letter. No, this letter makes everybody cry. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And I talked to Renee Albert, a mutual friend of ours, yeah. and she said, oh, isn't that the most beautiful yeah, thing? Yeah. Um, no, John's brother, who I hadn't, whom I hadn't met yet, um, wrote me an email just like, hi, welcome to the family. But then he started writing about John having a child and what having a child means and it like I was reading this letter I just started crying it's, it's so it's like just this great encapsulation of the whole sort of human experience I'd say and um then every, then I talked to a few other people I sent it on to a few friends found out like they all cried <laughs> and they're like John cried and John John's mom cried. like everybody cries at this letter and people who talk about the book all tell me they cried this letter like I had to pull the car over to cry at this letter. Like, what the hell are you reading a book while you're writing? Uh, <laughs> That's true. Writing, Maybe it's the, audio, a car. it's the audio book. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. It's just so we, <laughs> That's a good point. I, I don't want to get. Book. I don't want to get in trouble for because yeah. my listeners may actually mm. read and and don't drive at the same. Yeah. How is this this book healing for you? Ooh, well, you know what? I think it's more healing as sort of a creative effort than like a. I'm so glad I got to relive this moment. Like it wasn't really about the actual any sort of story like I'm so glad I got to write about this it was more just um, you know taking charge of my own sort of creative destiny and and you know making myself work and um, yeah so that was that was healing for me I'd, I'd say when you got that part on the pilot did yeah. you did part of you feel like oh my god 
I'm telling everybody I don't work, and now I'm kind of a fraud? Well, that's a good question. I would have held on to, like, <laughs> I want to be the guy not working. <laughs> this does ruin chapters one through three. Right. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I don't know if this pilot's getting picked up, so I may still go back to the... <laughs> do you want it to get picked up or not? No, I do want to get Okay. But great. I will have to move to L.A. if that happens. I okay. feel weird about that. Um, uh, did I feel like I was... Well, I feel like, you know, five years is a long stretch, so I still feel like legitimately... You know, I, I know that I was, like, not doing anything in the day, you know, so... Was sort of off of that experience. Well, that was my stuff. I would have held on to like, oh, I wrote in the book that I didn't work and now I'm working. Because you say, and you, you know, we talked about having something embarrassment and something shameful. That's where the comedy comes in. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you know. If I'm successful. Yeah. Do you have a book? Comedy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Why do you think people identify with the embarrassment and the struggle? Well, I think anyone who's dated is like likes hearing bad date stories, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I think um, also what I found before I even wrote the book is that ladies in their sort of late thirties, early forties loved hearing my story because, and just as I was like, I was in this baby panic thing, not outwardly, because it's sort of like even if you say that, if you throw the word like biological, it's so cliche, mm -hmm. but it's what a lot of women are dealing with. But then it's also like you're not supposed to talk about it because then you're a cliche. I don't know. So anyway. Because of that, I think a lot of women were so into my story when they found out I got pregnant as late as I did, um, because they're just so used to so much negative. Um, I don't think that answered your question, though. What was your question? The question was, why do people, why for comedy, it's about embarrassment and shame. Oh, right. This is a comedy podcast. Yes. Don't yes. talk baby stuff. Yeah. Uh, why for so we do have a lot of moms for, who listen to it as they're, as they're driving their kids to soccer. soccer. I forgot about that. Um, why for comedy is embarrassment. Oh, right. Um, well, maybe it's like the thing I said about watching your show. It's like when you see people, when you go see people do improv, if you're not an improviser, people always say, Oh my God, how are they up there not knowing what they're going to say? Like, it's like you get to watch this fear experience take place, but you're comfortably in the audience and you're laughing as sort of like relief. Like, you, you're relieved someone thought of something funny and then um, you're like on this crazy ride, but someone else is taking it for you. And that's kind of what I feel about the embarrassing things. Like, if you see someone else bearing their soul about like their embarrassing family thing or, um, you know. You know, having your pants split, no underwear on front Which of you. Which is audience. a true story. Yeah. And that um, happened to me, too. Did it? I was uh, <laughs> When I was doing I'm 27, I was much heavier. I was like 270, and I split my pants. And then I just... On stage? And that's what... Yeah, on stage. And I just Ooh. took a cardigan and oh draped it in the front. So the same thing happened. Always have a cardigan on hand, <laughs> yes. people. Yeah. Or always wear... Underwear. Underwear. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that would be easier. Yeah. Um, but no, so you, you see someone talk about that, and you're like... you're. It's just, you. everyone has their own embarrassing stuff. It's just who's going to talk about it. I always like hearing people talk about that stuff. You know, I haven't talked about my own embarrassing stuff until now, but... What stuff didn't get in the book? Um, that you were afraid to put in? They didn't put... See, I put most stuff in the book. But you I said think. earlier, you said, you know... Well, just, you know, a few... There were... When 30 Rock was happening, there were also a few other big career things that also were crashing and burning. Which and were... And at first I had them in there, but then I thought... I was reading, I was like, this sounds like a freaking sob story here. Like, I can't say, and this happened, and right. then you just sound like a sad sack. But right. that's why when people are like, she's so self I was like, fuck you, you should hear what else was happening. What else was happening during <laughs> well, that time? Like, okay, like, there was a musical, I mean, am I going to go yeah. public with this? Um, there was this musical, Legally Blonde, that was on Broadway, and uh -huh. I was playing the Paulette role, which is the Jennifer Coolidge part, mm -hmm. and I got replaced in that around the same time. Mm -hmm. and they went with like a big, but this one, that wasn't as like, what? I mean, right. like, I get it, like I'm not on Broadway, I don't have a Broadway voice. They replaced me with someone like, I mean, I could sing, but these people can like, sang. Right. So they, they replaced me with like, a big musical Broadway person. Uh -huh. um, that I was like, okay. Okay. Um, then also, Spring Breakdown, the movie I had. Yeah, this was a movie you wrote, and it yeah. uh, high hopes. It was Polar and Parker Posey. Right, it was Jane a shoe Lynch. in. Yeah. Shoe in. Yeah. Straight to vid. <laughs> I say vid to make it sound right. less I, painful. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that was a that was a big bummer too. Um, and that was happening like that was going to be like when Thirty Rock. I was like, I still got Spring Breakdown coming. But then that, you know, kind of went under the whole radar. And then there was something else. There was was it the Vanity Fair thing in two thousand and eight where there was the women. Well, that was just like one of those little like ding ding ding, you know, Chinese water torture. Right. That was a drip in the Chinese water. 
No, that was just like, you know, that everyone but me was in this vanity fair spread. I mean, um, but I mean, they were all still on SNL, like uh -huh. in, in, you know, just reality terms. Right. Like that's, it wasn't like, why was I left out? But it was like, I'm not in this society anymore, you know, it was that kind of thing. Was you said it, you, there was a quote that said it was one of your darkest days or something. Do you remember no, that? No, you know what? That was like, that was, um, you know what? I didn't say the darkest days thing. It was, um, I did. Well, no, but the magazine did. Okay. Here's another thing. Here's another thing about sugarcoating. Okay. I went to an event in New York Magazine mm -hmm. asking, so Rachel, what's going on with you now? You know, a little red carpet thing. Right. And I was like, well, honestly, like, you know, you're supposed to be like, um, I've got this, this, you know, just spin whatever you have and right. make it sound like the biggest thing ever. But I was like, well, honestly, uh, nothing really. You know, I know I'm supposed to say, and I said it in this light kind of joking tone. Uh -huh. Same with the, and I've, even the Vanity Fair, I said that in the same little right. interview. And it got this huge thing like, downer, what, no, wait, what was it? Oh, unemployment, a downer for draft. And then the whole wah, thing, wah. without the tone that I was saying, like a light tone, you mm -hmm. know? And then that got picked up everywhere. And then that sort of, you know, I learned my lesson. That's what I was scared about talking about this stuff because I want people to see that it was like in a humorous, light tone of like, here's where I was. And then, and then there was an interview, you know, speaking of that, there was an interview where, uh, it was, I think it was on CBS with uh, Gail oh. King. And you, you clarified, you said, a lot of people oh think that... Yes, well, the trolls thing? Is that what you're talking about? No, oh, okay. tell me about the trolls thing. Well, I have a sentence in the book. Like, um, in Holly, I say, like, you know, in real life, I'm a regular chick. But in Hollywood, I am seen as, like, a troll, an ogre, a woodland creature, uh -huh. or a manly lesbian. Right. Well, then they, like, it's like just what I was saying, like, folks, they say, Hollywood sees me as a troll. Uh -huh. And then that gets picked up. Everywhere mm -hmm. across the internet. And like troll, I meant a real troll, like troll doll troll, like right. a creature. Right. But troll, you know, what that has other implications. So now I'm and I'm seeing everywhere Hollywood sees me as a troll, which first of all sounds like completely like, eh, poor man. Right. And then also like I don't I wasn't saying bad, I was saying like like a chipmunk or <laughs> <Right. laughs> like a right. woodland creature thing, you know. So that's just how the whole spin. Like people just want to take the thing that could be like a little bit scandalous. But but you also clarified that people think that you got pregnant in the bar. Yes, people sometimes think girl in the bar like I got pregnant that same night. That is not the case. But you were very clear on the show that that didn't happen. Yeah. What do you feel? I mean, why do well, you feel? Well, not that many people think that. So, okay. Yeah. Why did it come up then? I think because the way she worded it made it sound. That, was that a good? That that seemed like you was kind of like on the hot seat a little. I did feel in the hot seat. I felt that Gail was coming across, and she's she Oprah's best the, friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, no, she was focusing on the the looks thing a lot, and that's what then that got picked up by a bunch of other things, and that's what I mean. Like that's just a little footnote in my beginning of my story, but I felt like I should address it, like rather than not. But um. Yeah, that got focused on a lot. Of and then the let's not. But I don't want people to then refocuses off of this podcast. Refocus it. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to like light the fire again about all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a publicist? I just hired one for this book. Okay, but, but when we were like Thirty Rock and all that stuff, you didn't have I one. I didn't, but I think I really should have because I didn't at the time. Would you? Well, how would you have spun it differently? I just think they might have told me like you know I, I sort of trusted everyone like right. you know trusted the world and I <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have yeah um, the end of the book I feel I don't want to give the end uh, there, I'm, there, there's no I ending. have eight more children right um, yeah <laughs> and you went so, to rehab yeah so um, <laughs> no what about the end John yes okay I felt sad because I wanted this happy ending I wanted you and John to get together well, you know, when I was writing, I mean, we still, we are together, actually, but uh -huh. when I was writing this... But explain to people when you say you're, well, yeah, he I lives mean, in know, an apartment. Still, and... Yeah, but we're still, well, see, we're still figuring this all out, basically. Okay. But there's positive, I don't look at it as, like, not the happy ending. Okay. Um, once I, I had my baby, like, I, I don't know, I just, I, the relationship thing, of course, I want, like, a solid relationship as a, as a parent and everything, but um, it wasn't, like, this panic of, like, oh, my God, what if things don't work? Like... It's just sort of how things happen. Is we both sort of went with the flow. Did you get anything? Because doing personal stuff, you always get people saying, I can't, you know, like, that didn't really happen. Or any, any like, your parents going, Rachel, did you get any of that? <laughs> no, like about, any, like, doubting something? Or? No, not doubting something, but just oh, like, like I can't. Yeah, why would you say that? Or 
I remember talking about something in my show about cocaine, and my mom's like, Mrs. Armstrong would have been very, Mrs. Ar not my mom, but through Mrs. Armstrong, she was uh, very disappointed well, you sure, did cocaine. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's like some things in there that are kind of embarrassing, but no one has no said, one anything. said anything to me. Yeah. That's that's a good sign. Yeah. That's that's a good sign. Yeah. That's a good sign. <laughs> uh, Rachel Dratch, her new book is A Girl Walks Into a Bar, Comedy, Calamity, Dating Disasters, and a Midlife Miracle. It's out now. And if you want to connect with her some more, I think we've done plenty of connecting. Right? Yes. yes. We have. Uh, you can go to racheldratch.com. Oh, but actually, yes. may I say, yes. I really want to connect with you. I'm on Twitter because racheldratch.com. I have no means you have no, to connect. It's yeah. a beautiful website, Thank by the you. way. Thank you. But twi what is the your tweeting. Twitter tweet? I'm the real Dratch because someone was faking being me writing horrible jokes. So that's why I'm the real Dratch. Rachel Dratch, <laughs> thank you so much for being on this special edition. The of special edition. Special episode of Improv Nerd. Special. Yes, you're in town. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Improv I want to thank uh, Rachel Drash again uh, for being our guest. I also want to thank our producer, Ben Caprero, and Hotel Indigo for accommodating us. So whenever you're in Chicago, come and stay at the Hotel Indigo. Uh, for the Improv Nerd, uh, this is Jimmy Corain. Uh, please, please, please like us on Facebook. If you want any information about uh, classes in the Artist Low Comedy taught by me, Jimmy Corain, go to jimmycorain.com. Uh, until next time, remember, walk. Don't run. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. And he's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs>